This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the BBC News Quiz, MarkFiore.com, The Bugle, The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Media Matters, Counterspin, Jimmy Reefer Cake, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Julia, which country is poorer because their standards have slipped? Well, Italy has uh, had their credit rating downgrade by Standards and Poor, and uh, Silvio Berlusconi is quite unhappy about it. Um, I'm surprised, really, he's got time to be unhappy about it. I mean, I've always been impressed with the fact that he's been able to do to the Italian economy what he's done to those girls at the Bunga Bunga parties. <laughs> I'm just impressed with Silvio Berlusconi. He runs Italy, he runs uh, Italian television, and he manages the sex parties. I mean, a man who can multitask, Hmm? you know, what's to dislike? (laughs) I find it all really complicated. I hate all this financial thing. Apparently we're going to experience a double-dip recession. What is that, where the orange sherbet isn't as good as the lemon? I don't know. (laughs) Do you know that the European country that has had the healthiest growth is Belgium, which hasn't had a government for a year? I'm just saying, you know. Standard and Poor, yeah. they gave a clean bill of health to the Lehman Brothers. So really oh. they should be substandard and very poor. This <laughs> is a terrible name for it. Do you think it was a Mr. Poor? a double act in the 70s, Tommy Standard and Bobby Poor. <laughs> Standard and Poor said that one of the reasons they were downgrading Italy was because of a, a lack of financial competence in government. But he's got a team of pretty high-powered financial advisors, pretty astute. Because, mm. I mean, nobody, let's face it, nobody is going to have a more realistic view of how the market works than mm. prostitutes and blackmailers. Yeah. <laughs> They're being sued because they've copied Strictly Come Dancing. That's what I took from that. Who are? Berlusconi's television company is being sued. In what way? With the dancing or with having some old man with his carer looking after him? Strictly come dancing in Italy, but not paid. And I think it'd be really quite sweet if what actually brought down Berlusconi's government was strictly come dancing. <laughs> it's like Al Capone and the whole kind of tax thing that brought him down. It, you know, Berlusconi's like, nobody could... Ta- I don't that's French. Hold on, I can do accents. Nobody can... No, same one. Hold on, hold on. Nobody can touch me, right? And... Uh, <laughs> Scots Italian. I think that'd be a chitting in. You don't want to be the BBC person that has to go and enforce this. They are so going to wake up with half a horse's head in their bed. (laughs) For an extra point, why are the Fed doing the twist? It's some financial manoeuvre where they print more money or something. It's It's called Operation Twist Redux. Buy Uh, short and sell long. Or sell short and buy long. Oh, thank God you're not in charge. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The credit rating agencies Standard & Poor have downgraded Italy's credit rating from A plus to A, while the UK is now forecast to only grow by 1.1% this year. I have to admit, I pay very little attention to growth forecasts. Never did me any good.
Are you unemployed, hungry, and down to your last dollar? Never fear. S&P Numbers and Stuff is here to help. Our analysts have determined that your problem is your nation's long-term debt. We're an expert rating agency, so we've downgraded U.S. creditworthiness by one panic point. But what about our $2 trillion mathematical error, you say? Never mind. In the time it took you to question our abilities, we've changed our rationale to political analysis. It's the stuff in S&P numbers and stuff. Sure, we're financial analysts and bean counters, but we thoroughly monitor and analyze the political pulse by watching television. S&P Numbers and Stuff has a proud history of making the right calls at very nearly the right time. We'll rate anything. Finances, politics, color schemes, relationships. Like that pretty girl next door? We'll send her a AAA rating once you've paid our non-refundable rating fee. And if you act now, we'll throw in not one, not two, but three magical rating rocks. If these rocks fall when dropped, it's time to call us for a custom rating. Thanks to S&P Numbers and Stuff, you're on your way to long-term financial health. Past performance is a guarantee of current results. They say it's all right. They say it's all right. Say it's all right. Have a good time. Cause it's all right. Economics news now. Are you an investor? Worried about your portfolio in these times of economic uncertainty? Do you tend to panic at the first sign of trouble and sell anything you can see, touch, think about or steal? then grow some f***ing balls. <laughs> the whole of the global economy is being, once again, humped to the precipice of catastrophe by the financial markets, where it basically, it does seem, John, that we have put the entire economic stability of the Western world in the hands of some easily startled lunatics predicated on the age-old philosophy, I'll probably be fine. And... Things are looking bad, John. I mean, what's the reaction in America to... I mean, are people fussed about total economic meltdown of the entire Western world? Well, it's hard to say, because the American economy itself uh, is not in good shape. It's currently calling for a priest and <laughs> asking him if he's got any good investment tips. What I'm saying <laughs> is it's not dead, it's just desperate. But it does seem to me, John, that the governments uh, in the West have basically been overindulgent parents to their rogue financial children, uh, the financial markets, have now turned up back at home with a dubious spouse and a drinking problem and said, you know how you said you'd always be there for me, mummy? Well, <laughs> be a dear and clear my gambling debts for me. A few trillions should get the off my back. Now where's my hammock? Bring me a caviar enchilada or I'll shit on your patio. Take my shoes off. <laughs> Clean my shoes. I don't like them. Buy me some new shoes. I'm allergic to nitrogen. Get out of the air of this house or I'll, or I'll scream. Milk two sugars. Fucking pronto. Snap to it, bitch. Don't mind me. I'm pissing on your television. Oh no, it's caught fire. What have you done with my doggy? Well, I want him here and I want him now. Dig him up and give him CPR or I'll bury you and see how you like it. Stop looking at me. You don't own me. Give me an axe. I want to smash up your car. You're fired. Where's my inheritance? Clean the floor. I can't walk on that. Why don't you love me anymore? Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> 
Th things definitely don't look good. The head of the World Bank has warned that the world is in an economic danger zone, like the danger zone that Tom Cruise flew through in Top Gun. We just need to put on our mirrored sunglasses and oil up our volleyball-ready pecs and get out there. <laughs> I feel the need, Andy, the need for substantial economic recovery. What's <laughs> <laughs> the problem, John? You know, this, you know, basically for the last few months they've been saying it's all going to be fine. Basically, we've been playing the goose in that particular analogy. <laughs> and we're now it's just patently obvious things are going to end well. Uh, Christine Lagarde, the recently appointed IMF chief, and well in the running uh, for the 2011 title of IMF boss, least likely to be accused of splanter-bootling a hotel chambermaid. <laughs> she said the world was entering a dangerous place, as you said, Robert Zellick said it was in a danger zone. And it, it is slightly concerning that even those at the very top of the economic game... Uh, even they see the current state of the economy as analogous to the trailer for a shit scary horror film. That <laughs> that is not that is not a financial world I'm comfortable with, John. <laughs> the uh, the International Monetary Fund has uh, has warned that the global financial system is now more vulnerable than at any time since the 2008 financial crisis. And it turns out that basically everyone in Europe is now in trouble. Economic instability is contagious, and Greece has been sneezing on everyone, <laughs> even Germany. Even Germany, who have less unemployment now than they did in 2008, and who have somehow been experiencing quite strong growth over the last few years, even Germany are now at risk due to their exposure to Greek banks and their being the largest contributor to the EU uh, emergency bailout fund. It must be so incredibly annoying for Germany to have to take what amounts to the entire continent on their fiscal shoulders, especially when one of the members of that continent has been calling their leader an unfuckable <laughs> lardass. I just hope all of this isn't making them too angry, Andy, because they are not nice when they are angry. <laughs> um, Am I right, Andy? Am I right about that? Well, it was ages ago, John. It was, it was ages ago. I'm sure... I'm, I'm, co I'm quite confident they've learnt their lesson. Mm -hmm. quite, I'm relatively... <laughs> relatively optimistic. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, the, as you said, the uh, IMF has said that the financial system is more vulnerable than at any time for the last three years. And it does appear that the lessons of 2008 have not so much been not learnt as not read not even opened when the envelope dropped through the door before being recycled, whilst the next three years of global economics have been based on a takeaway pizza menu instead. Depressing times, John, the good ship HMS Unbridled Capitalism set off on its unsinkable voyage across the ocean of economics with a hull made of sugar on the grounds that it might not dissolve, and even if it does, by that time we'll have so much money we'll just buy our way off the bottom of the ocean, drowned or undrowned. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
the EU is on the verge of collapse. The European Union itself is falling apart and fast. The great weakness is obviously governments like Greece. If they were to default, which is what's happened in, in other countries, you would have a collapse of the currency and, and a lot of uh, problems. If the euro collapses, Europe collapses. And if Europe collapses, where will college students spend a semester abroad to learn how to throw up sangria in Spanish? <laughs> now, the collapse is imminent because, once again, Greece is in danger of defaulting on their debt. And to save themselves, they have only two options. A, Prime Minister George Papandreou can turn Greece's creditors to stone by using Medusa's head. <laughs> or B, Greece can convince the other European countries that they're getting their financial house in order. But to do that, someone in Greece may have to do the unthinkable. Get a job. <laughs> Let me, let me explain, Greeks. A job is when you provide a service in exchange for something called money. Ask Italy. Wait, don't ask Italy. Now, the European Central Bank could solve this problem by printing lots of money, but Germany doesn't want to. Because after World War I, they printed so much currency that inflation exploded, and just to buy a loaf of bread, people had to fill a wheelbarrow with money. Ironically, the price of a wheelbarrow was an ox cart full of bread. <laughs> this economic chaos brought about the rise of the Nazi party. So basically, Germany is saying to the rest of Europe, we're mild-mannered Bruce Banner now. But if we're exposed to the gamma rays of inflation, we could become fascist Hulk. <laughs> Don't make me Hitler. You wouldn't like me when I'm Hitler. And for some reason, Poland takes Germany's we-might-become-Nazis thing pretty seriously. Their finance minister said this crisis could lead to war in 10 to 20 years. 10 to 20 years, and that's in Celsius. <laughs> Folks, Europe has been torn apart by war so many times, and for it to happen again would be so wonderful. Because World War II is what got America out of the Great Depression. U.S. manufacturing soared, unemployment plunged, and our tonguing strangers in Times Square reached record highs. But 10 to 20 years, I believe, is too long to wait. So let me just prime the pump a little bit. Everyone knows the fastest way to start a European war is to piss off the Krauts. So let's give them a real kick in the schnitzels. Hey, Germany, Belgium's European affairs minister says that you lack solidarity and shouldn't be telling other nations what to do. Adding, I bet you don't even have the balls to invade us again. <laughs> and hey, Deutschland, England's former prime minister Gordon Brown said, it is also time for Germany to acknowledge that it must be integral to solving the problem because it has been integral to the problem itself. Slam! Supercalifragilist, your country is atrocious! Germany! Germany! Germany, you just got your ass served to you, and in England, that's a breakfast meat. And brace yourself, fatherland. Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi was overheard saying, and this is an actual quote, that German Chancellor Angela Merkel is an unable lardass. And that, and that, 
from a guy who would have sex with a four-slot toaster if it were under 18. So let the war-fueled recovery begin. Dig up the Andrews sisters, lock up the Japanese, and start hoarding tin. Because this is the only answer to America's financial worries. Through the guts of a nation that's bloated with spoils of war. Was it worth fighting for? Ross Huskine has a new book out. It's called Confidence Spend. It's about uh, President Obama's advisors, and it shows some of the things that we had feared and suspected inside the Obama administration. For example, apparently uh, President Obama asked Tim Geithner, his Treasury Secretary, to come up with a plan to dissolve Citibank. Didn't mean that they were going to do it. He just wanted to see a plan as one of the options. Apparently, Tim Geithner ignored him and did not give that plan. I- I'm I'm blown away by that. I'm not blown away by Tim Geithner. I'm t- that's exactly what I expect. In fact, President Obama, as Glenn Greenwald points out, had all these uh, progressive economists on his campaign staff. Where he asked Stiglitz for advice all the time, Robert Reich, etc. As soon as he got into office, those guys were gone, long gone. They got one dinner with him once. And then he brought in Geithner and, uh, and Larry Summers. And all the articles say, and Glenn makes this point, and it's a brilliant point, all the articles say, despite the fact that Tim Geithner and Larry Summers were the most responsible of any Democrat, maybe of anybody, for this uh, financial debacle in the first place, and for all the giveaways to the banks in the first place, they were selected by President Obama to be the leaders in that category in his administration. Glenn says, it's not despite that, it's because of that. When are we going to wake up to that? So I'm not surprised that Tim Kiner was like, the president asked for a plan to dissolve Citigroup. I ain't dissolve the Citigroup. What are you, crazy? But if I'm the president and he ignores that kind of order, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, it's easy to be a tough guy doing this, right? But I think I would fire him. Look, you've got to understand something. The president represents the entire United States of America. All those people in the middle class are depending on you. You can't keep giving away uh, money to the banks. Oh, because Tim Geithner decided he didn't give a, didn't care about your uh, policy ideas. He was just going to do his policy ideas. It's outrageous. Larry Summers says uh, that we were home alone and that there was not adult leadership. But on the other hand, he was probably complaining uh, because uh, the president didn't listen to him, him enough. Larry Summers, you take with a grain of salt. Okay, he probably wanted to give the banks more. And uh, and here is a very telling quote again. Uh, it, it comes from the New York Times now. Okay. Uh, apparently, one top banker, uh, quoted in the New York Times, said that Geithner was, quote, our man in Washington, whose job was basically to make sure there were no systemic changes on Wall Street. Our man in Washington. There it is, man. And so that's why when Obama says, hey, let's look at uh, dissolving Citibank, he goes, yeah, I don't think so. I don't take my orders from you. I take my orders from Citibank. And this guy is still the Treasury Secretary. By the way, almost everybody else on the economic team has left. The only guy left standing is the bank's man in Washington. This is not leadership. It's sad. It's weak. And it's complicit. 
and that's the worst of all. Days of sunrise and sunset pass in a flickering instant from present to past, and I never see the sun in the sky. We go searching from lower to so high. I see rays of light, I see blue sky and clouds that grow in the evening, bright colors abound. But I still cannot see that warm, gentle energy. Someone singing me lies, like sweet lullabies. There's evil in her eyes. She wants to stop me feeling, stop me dreaming. When the sun in the sky is hiding so shy, a sign I recognize. She wants to stop me feeling, stop me dreaming. Politicians, and especially Democratic ones, talk all day long about helping the middle class in America. Well, how about helping the lower class too? They may not vote as much as the middle class, but they've been really taking it on the chin over the last few years. The newly released statistics on poverty bear this out in the starkest way. Last year, a record number of Americans, 46 million people, were living below the official poverty line, which is set at $11,300 a year if you're single, or $22,300 if you're in a family of four. And of those 46 million people in poverty, 20 million of them were actually living 50% below the poverty line, if you can imagine that. And get this: 22% of children in America. Are living in poverty today. These statistics amount to a moral indictment of our economy and our priorities. Republicans don't talk about the poor except to scold them, as Rick Santorum does every time he gets on stage. And to an embarrassing degree, Democrats have stopped talking about the poor. I think I can count on one hand the number of times Obama has talked about the issue. But silence is not an anti-poverty program. It actually makes it worse. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Within the sound of silence, in restless dreams I walked alone. Narrow streets of cobblestone, beneath the halo of a street lamp, I turned my collar to the cold and damp. When my eyes were stared by the flash of a neon light, split the night and touched the sound of silence. Women also are becoming almost the invisible poor. The National Women's Law Center crunched all these numbers that I mentioned from the Census Bureau, and the results show that there's also a record number of women living in poverty. And the findings reveal that millions of those women have no health insurance. So we're talking about now an issue that extends not only to women but also to children that they may be needing to bring into this world at some point. You can't delay that until you have health care, right?、Mm -hmm. uh, what? All those statistics add up to is that more than 17 million women were living in poverty last year, compared to 12.6 million men. And as usual, things are, are worse for older women. Twice as many women over 65 were living in poverty compared to men. And those numbers just represent the population-wide average. You know what groups do particularly worse, Louis? Hispanic and Black women increased disproportionately. Poverty rates even above and beyond the rates for women, which are higher than rates for men or the average population. Right, that's been a trend for a while. And of course, single women have、uh, the hardest time of all. More than forty percent of women who had families are now living in poverty. More than forty percent. It's almost half, Louis. 
This is this is the United States, right? I think it is. The news on women's earnings continue to be just as dismal. Women working full-time year-round continue to be paid only 77 cents for every dollar paid to their male counterparts. So this is a bad situation. This is very bad. Everything I do, I do it for a girl. I do it for a girl. I do it for a girl. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Poverty rate uh, in the latest census report. Nearly one in six Americans was living in poverty last year. Poverty surged to its highest level since 1993. Last year, 462 million Americans lived below the poverty line. That's $22,000 and $314. So I should say $22,314 for a family of four. It's making the fourth year in a row that poverty has increased. Locally, one in five residents was living in poverty. This is in Washington. In Maryland, Virginia, the poverty rate was about 11%. I've got people that are living in the woods. I've got people that are sharing rooms, so honestly, that doesn't surprise me, said Rob Paxton of Safe Haven, a day shelter for the homeless in, the Fair in Fairfax County. Well, obviously, these people are morally reprehensible. They're morally reprehensible. They just haven't been a good citizen. Economic turmoil has pummeled children and women. Poverty rate among women climbed to 14.5% in 2010 from 13.9% in 2009. The highest in 17 years. Extreme poverty rate among women climbed to 6.3% from 5.9%. The highest rate ever recorded. Over 17 million women lived in poverty in 2010. The percentage of women under 65 with health insurance increased from 19.2% in, in 2009 to 19.7% in 2010. Well, you know what that means. They're probably sluts, right? They're, mor they're morally, de they're morally uh, deficient. Among women who had families, among women who had families, Single mothers, I guess uh, divorced mothers, widows, four in ten lived in poverty. 40.7%. The child poverty rate jumped to 22% last year. 
More than half of those poor children lived in a female-headed family. We had almost one million more children fall into poverty between 2009 and 2010. We've also seen a continued increase in the number of children who live in extreme poverty. For instance, a family of four living on $30 a day. Think about that. $30 a day. If you take half of that, $450 a month for a room for these four people to live in, you have $15 a day to feed these kids and yourself. $30 a day. And I don't know, what's the uh, the minimum wage? Seven and a quarter, right? Is that what it is? Seven and a quarter? Yeah. You're making, uh, you're doing eight hours a day if you're lucky? Sixty bucks a day? It's just, it's stunning. It's stunning. And these people, are, of course, are all, uh, <laughs> they're all morally deficient. They're all, they're morally deficient. Half of all bankruptcies, you'll remember, in this country are a function of, uh, of medical expenses. Those morally deficient people who didn't get insurance, they should be punished. They should be punished. Census Bureau uh, did have some good news, however, if you are very, very rich. Uh, median household income in 2010 was only $369 higher than it was in 1989. Now, uh, yesterday on the after show, somebody uh, linked to uh, something that Zero uh, Hedge uh, posted, suggesting that uh, since I think it was 1989, we actually, uh, 30 that would be 30 years, 30 years ago, excuse me, it was 1980, somewhere around there, that the median income is actually less than it was in 1980. Now, that's not exactly accurate. Because if you dig into that uh, data, which I did, you found that it was actually for people between the uh, 15 years and older. Now, in 1980, if you were 15, you were making more money than you would today. There was more 15-year-olds working. There was also more money to be made because many of those people in 1980, 15-year-olds, if you live in a rural area, you probably actually go and you start working. A lot of those uh, people are 16. Uh, but if you look at 18 years and older, people, the median uh, income today is 25% higher, while GDP has grown by 61%. So what makes up for that 40% difference? in the growth of the economy, and how much more money people are making? Well, of course, it's all gone to the richest Americans. The poorest Americans actually make less than they did in 1978. The middle class has seen its income essentially stagnate. The, the top 20%, I should say, I'm sorry, when I say uh, middle income, I would say that, that it's closer to about 
seven percent. It's twenty five percent higher than it was, but it's grown seven five seven percent. The top twenty um, percent in this country, their income has grown almost forty two percent, and in the top one percent, it's almost immeasurable. They don't even have that census data. And a big part of that is also a function of capital gains. We have encouraged people to speculate in the stock market, and they've done quite well. And capital gains rates are half of what they were under Reagan. Half. Five percent. Five percent of the population in this country consumes 80% of the capital gain income. So when you talk about capital gains, you're like, well, but what about pensions and whatnot and people putting the stock markets? That's tax-deferred stuff. 5% of, uh, of, the, of the nation, 5% of the people, control 80% of the capital gains income. And that income is taxed at half the rate it otherwise would be. 1% controls 40% of the capital gains income. You're getting screwed. You're getting totally screwed. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. This weekend, Fox News host David Asman tried to argue that the poverty rate actually drops when poverty programs are cut. They came down the poverty rate dramatically when the government stopped spending a lot of money on poverty programs, first during the Reagan administration and then during the Democratic Clinton administration when he did welfare reform. So it actually brings down the poverty rate when you spend less money on these poverty programs, right? Guest panelist Mark Taggi was having none of it. That is a total distortion of what I read those charts to say. Essentially, when you have a recession or a downturn, people lose their jobs, they, they do not have an income, and cost, living costs in many cases have continued to rise over that period, David. So the poverty rate is the worst during the depths of a recession. Barack Obama made a speech on September 19th outlining his new tax plan, including raising tax rates for the wealthy. One part that attracted a lot of attention was the Warren Buffett rule, based on the billionaire's long-running observation that he pays taxes at a lower rate than his secretary. Buffett's not the only wealthy person who pays relatively little in taxes, and part of Obama's plan is to change that. But that point didn't sit well with the Associated Press, which issued a wildly misleading fact-check article that debunked a speech Obama didn't give. It started off with this, quote, President Barack Obama makes it sound as if there are millionaires all over America paying taxes at lower rates than their secretaries, close quote. AP claimed the data tell a different story. Except that they don't, and Obama didn't really say that anyway. The thrust of AP's argument was that millionaires pay about 29% of their income in federal taxes, while families in the middle pay about 15%. That's true enough, but again, not relevant. The Obama plan, like Buffett's argument, observes that capital gains and dividend income, which is how some really wealthy people make much of their money, are taxed at 15%. 
The AP knows this. It's in their article. Just as they know that there are about 1,400 millionaires who pay no taxes at all. The main point of AP's piece, that Obama was wrong to say the rich weren't paying their fair share, made it a hit with conservative pundits and bloggers. Too bad it was a fact check in need of a fact check. Speaking of insiders and still going over Obama's uh, budget plans, Mm -hmm. let's hear what Paul Ryan has to say about class warfare. Class warfare, Chris, may make for really good politics, but it makes for rotten economics. We don't need a system that seeks to divide people. We don't need a system that seeks to prey on people's fear, envy, and anxiety. We need a system that creates job and innovation and removes these barriers for entrepreneurs to go out and rehire people. And I'm afraid these kinds of tax increases don't work. Yeah, he wants to replace. He doesn't want to. He wants to replace fear, envy, and anxiety with anger, hatred, and screw the other guy sentimentality. Basically, but he's he's also wrong about the tax, the the class warfare idea. It, if you have an economy where more and more and more power and money is in the hands of fewer and fewer people you're not going to be able to efficiently allocate the resources to the rest of that society. It's like, have you ever had a meeting with somebody who's a billionaire? Uh, no. I have a couple times. And, and you know, and you do, because if, if yes, you're out I looking did. for money for businesses and get so started, you got to meet with everybody. And instead of meeting with like 10 or 11 people who have six things on your plate, you're meeting with one person who's got like 1,200 things on their plate. Mm-hmm. And what they're most interested about is their lunch mm-hmm. and where they're going skiing next week, not about starting a business. They'll sit down and they'll tell you they're worried about everything because they don't have the answers for anything else either. Like looking at people like Warren Buffett or someone else, say, oh, they, they've got a plan, they know what's going to happen. Nobody does, least of all the billionaires. They've got this huge chunk of money that came to them somehow through usually luck and a little bit of you know well, underhandedness, but... They don't. They can't control the economy. They're trying to make maximum return on their money, and they don't know what's going to do it. Um, by the way, you know this this whole thing of raising taxes. We we don't want to raise taxes on job creators and job raise taxes on job. That is that's well. I mean, historically, that's just not true, right? Because in the in the 90s, Bill Clinton raised the top marginal tax or top rates, and it. The economy went swing, swimmingly. So it, the, the correlation does not, uh, you know, you cut. Well, the correlate, honestly, the correlation between any of it is bullshit. Okay? The economy didn't expand in the 1990s because of Bill Clinton's tax policies. It expanded because you finally had technologies that were invested in by the military industrial complex come to fruition and enter the open market. That's what it was. It was technological breakthroughs. It had nothing to do with tax rates, and neither did it in the 1940s, 50s, or 60s. I mean, you want to know why we all live so well in the 50s and 60s? Uh, white people live so well in right. this country. Certain white people. Certain, well, most of them did. It was because the entire industrialized world was destroyed, so nobody had any other option to buy anything but American. Okay. And we're, we're recovering from that massive, you know, blog jam that we benefited from in the 50s and 60s and 70s and we felt like cheated ever since the 90s like oh how dare they they're taking our business away well they're just they're just not living rubble anymore
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. So now Paul Ryan and the Republicans are crying about class warfare. Give me a break. They and their super-rich cronies have been waging class warfare mercilessly over the last four decades, and they've been taking no prisoners. During this period, the top 0.1% of the country, those 150,000 people who make more than $5.5 million a year, they've seen their income level jump up an astonishing 385%. But the bottom 90 percent, those 137 million wage earners, have seen their income fall by 1 percent during this period. And in the last 10 years alone, the median income for working-age households has fallen by more than 10 percent. Today, we have a record number of Americans living in poverty, 46 million people. Among these, shamefully, are 22 percent of the kids in this country. All the while, the top 1% and the top 0.1% hog more and more of the nation's income and wealth and pay less and less in taxes. There's always been class warfare in the United States. Sometimes it's masked. Sometimes it's naked. It's naked today. And it's one-sided, too. The super-rich are very mobilized and heavily armed. Everyone else, with the exception of some folks in Wisconsin, Ohio, and a few other places, is disarmed and very disorganized. Let's recognize this class warfare for what it is, and let's join the battle, non-violently but militantly, and fight as hard as we can for some semblance of economic justice. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. A new Census Bureau report shows that another 2.6 million people slipped into poverty in the United States last year. Understandably, the right-wing media took this unfortunate news to renew the claim that the poor don't have it so bad after all. What Obama didn't tell us as he was pleading for more spending is what it really means to be poor in America. 80% of poor households in America have air conditioning. Nearly 75%, nearly three-fourths of people defined as poor have a car or truck and 31% of those have two or more cars or trucks. According to the U.S. Census, poverty is defined as a family of four making less than $22,000 a year. Studies show that living in poverty has serious negative consequences for one's health, educational opportunities, and housing stability. In the next round of uh, budget cuts in the Super Congress, uh, if they do nothing at all, if they have no agreement, it'll be half in non-defense spending cuts and half in defense spending cuts. Uh, they will definitely have an agreement. 
Now, some people think, oh, my God, both sides are so intransigent. This is the typical conventional wisdom in Washington. So, you know, likely nothing will happen, and then in which case half the cuts will come from defense. My ass, they will. Uh, there's, that is inconceivable. The defense lobby is so strong in this country, there's no way they're going to let them cut $600 billion from defense. So what they're going to do is they're going to put all the pressure for most of that money to come from entitlement spending. And the guy who's going to help them is Joe Lieberman, the guy who used to call himself a Democrat and he calls himself whatever he calls himself. Now I know what to call him instead. Uh, he's got a great idea. Watch this. Bottom line, uh, we can't protect these entitlements and, and also have the national defense we need to protect us in a dangerous world while we're at war against the Islamist extremists to attack us on 9-11 and will be uh, for a long time to come. We you understand that? Oh, we can't keep your entitlements. We need the money to fight the Islamist extremists. Really? <laughs> For example, that war in Afghanistan that is now, uh, in the long run, might cost us over a trillion dollars. You know that they say that there is less than 100 al-Qaeda within Afghanistan. That's where we're wasting all of our money. Why? Because it's going to the defense industry, and they love that. And Joe Lieberman, who gets paid by the defense industry, also loves that. So he's saying, we've got to go fight that, and we've got to take it out of your entitlements. By the way, for the millionth time, Social Security is a $2.5 trillion surplus. That's because you guys paid into it your whole lives. And Lieberman's saying, I don't want to pay it. I want to take that money and instead give it to the military-industrial complex so we can continue these nonsense mythical wars against Islamist extremists when our own intelligence agencies say that there's less than 100 in that giant war we're fighting in Afghanistan. This is absolutely absurd. By the way, what do the American people think? They hate it. When they give them a whole bunch of options, what would you like to cut in spending? Number one in a landslide was defense. 51% beat everything else combined. 51% of the American people said in a Reuters Ipsos poll, cut defense first. Social Security came in at 18%, and that's the highest it's ever come in. So by about a three to one margin, they say, don't cut Social Security cut defense. What does Lieberman say? No, no, no. My friends who are defense contra contractors who pay my bills, who get me reelected, they are the ones that pay for those ads that deceive you into thinking that I'm a Democrat. They told me, no, I'm going to steal from your Social Security and Medicare and give it to the defense contractors so we can start more wars against Islamist extremists. This is grotesque, man. And if you don't get enraged and fight back you're gonna lose and he's gonna win it's a near guarantee because all of Washington is behind Lieberman do you know uh, who Lieberman mentored uh, before 2008 in the Senate I hope you're sitting if you don't know this fact Senator Barack Obama Obama chose Lieberman as his mentor by the way I you know knowing that fact I can't believe we ever for a second thought that guy was going to do the right thing. Let's play 
Jimmy Reefer Cakes. This is not class warfare. It's math. Reefer Cake felt that uh, Obama um, said it well this week, so he had to get him in the studio and jam out with me. That's a quote. Uh, here it is, folks. This is not class warfare. It's math. So the speaker says we can't have it my way or the highway, and then basically says my way or the highway. <laughs> That's not smart. That's not right. These Republicans are putting up an awful fight. President Obama gives them one last chance. You know what they can do with that olive branch. It's not fair. This is not class warfare. The Buffett rule couldn't be more fair. It's math. There should be no more debate. We have work to do and jobs to create. Anybody who says we can't change the tax code to correct that is lying. Anyone who assigns some pledge to protect every single tax loophole so long as they live, they should be called out. They should have to defend that unfairness. Because it's wrong. The economic situation is getting dire, so President Obama is spitting hot fire, telling them what is fair and square. Middle class families shouldn't pay higher taxes than millionaires and billionaires. That's pretty straightforward. It's hard to argue against that. Fantastic. Wow, that was really good, Jimmy Reefer Cake. Was that Obama on cheese? Did, did President Obama actually come in and play uh, the incident? That was that was awesome. Yeah, I thought um, I give that an A plus this week. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I I just thought that was great. One of the big headlines out of the Forbes 400 list this year is for Charles and David Koch, the Koch brothers. Their father, of course, invented a way to turn oil into gasoline. They inherited dad's company, and importantly, they did not take it public. It is a private company, which means that anything the company makes redounds to them as individuals, and boy, does it. They have had a banner year, their combined net worth jumping by more than 40% in the past year. The Koch brothers are up to $50 billion in personal wealth right now. And that means that as of this year, Charles and David Koch, as two people, have more money than the GDP of Sri Lanka, Slovenia, Bulgaria, Oman, Tunisia, Guatemala, Uruguay, Lebanon, Serbia, Uzbekistan, Lithuania, Costa Rica, and all of the other countries that you see scrolling by you right now. If the Koch brothers wanted to, like, buy Samoa, not the cookie, but the country, Samoa's GDP is $565 million, which means that the Koch brothers could personally buy roughly 88 Samoas and still have change left over. 
The Koch brothers have, look at the, the country still, yeah, okay. The Koch brothers have done really, really great with the oil and chemical conglomerate they inherited from their dad. It was the second largest privately held company in the entire country. Over the last few years, their combined net worth as two people has skyrocketed from $34 billion in 2007 to $50 billion now. They have always been rich, and I mean really rich. But in the last five years, the Koch brothers' net worth has been swelling like a broken ankle. It has been an awesome, awesome time for them as two men. But during that time, Koch Industries, the company, the source of their wealth, has seen something a little different happen. Here's how employment levels have changed at Koch Industries during this same time period. Koch Industries has shed employees by the tens of thousands, as the Koch brothers have gotten, personally, billions and billions and billions of dollars richer. Wait a minute, though. I thought rich people were the job creators. And corporations, the job creators, right? The Koch brothers are rich people, and they privately hold this corporation. And yet the more money they seem to make, the fewer Americans they seem to employ. Now, there's no reason to single out the Koch brothers on that front. I mean, it is illustrative to do so. But this is basically the story of corporations and of rich people in the country right now. As corporate profits are sky high right now, as America's biggest corporations are seeing profits 26% higher than they were a year ago, We know from the unemployment figures that those profits are not translating into jobs for Americans. For a company like ExxonMobil, for example, that is sort of how it's been in recent years. As ExxonMobil has seen its revenue go up and up and up and up and, oh my God, even further up, the number of people employed by Exxon has gone down and down and down. As President Obama and Democrats have proposed dealing with the deficit and the fiscally disastrous legacy of the Bush tax cuts that mostly benefited the richest people in this country, as Democrats have talked about dealing with those problems by increasing the amount of taxes that rich people pay, congressional Republicans have responded by calling rich people job creators. If you are rich, you are by definition a job creator to today's Republicans. And that is very cute to be called a job creator. But again, rich people are doing astonishingly well right now. And that does not appear to be translating into them hiring lots of people. Although if you ask the Koch Brothers funded group, Americans for Prosperity, quote, we know that decreasing taxation and regulatory burdens on job creators and innovators is the only policy design that has ever lifted people out of poverty, spurred economic growth, and created jobs. This is the basic economic fight right now in the country. The right, including the conservative groups bankrolled by Charles and David Koch, trying to make the case that the richest people in the country and corporations are the key to the economy. That although they admittedly are doing really awesome right now, if they could just do a little more awesome, if we could just figure out some way to cut their taxes and let them make more profit, that will result in there being more jobs for other people and everything being better for everybody. Corporate tax cuts and tax cuts for very, very rich people like the Koch brothers will, in the words of Americans for Prosperity, quote, lift people out of poverty. Or at least it will help them build the pile of $50 billion they are already sitting on into an even bigger pile while their company keeps laying people off. On the other side of that fight are the Democrats and the almost united front. They are finally getting around to showing for the president's jobs agenda, which does include this very populist message. Would you rather that the oil companies get to keep their tax loopholes? Or would you rather make sure that we're hiring thousands of construction workers to rebuild America? Would you rather keep in place special tax breaks for millionaires and billionaires? Or 
Or would you say, let's get teachers back in the classroom so our children can learn? Now, the Republicans, you know, when I, I, I talked about this earlier in the week, they said, well, this is class warfare. You know what? If asking a billionaire to pay their fair share of taxes, to, to pay the same tax rate as a plumber or a teacher, is class warfare, then you know what? I, 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 I'm, I'm a warrior for the middle class. I'm happy to fight for the middle class. I'm happy to fight for working people. That basic policy idea apparently is stupefying to the pundit class and to the Beltway media, who cannot believe how far Obama is going out on a limb by campaigning on something like this. The policy of raising taxes on the wealthiest Americans is a policy supported by huge majorities of the American people, including something like 70 to 80 percent of people who describe themselves as moderates. This is a really popular idea, and every Democrat in the country can run on this very popular idea. And Democrats who are good at articulating this idea, I think, will run on this idea to great effect. Por ejemplo. I hear all this, you know, well, this is class warfare, this is whatever. No. There is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody. You built a factory out there, good for you. But I want to be clear, you moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers, the rest of us paid to educate. You uh, were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work the rest of us did. Now look, you built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. The right wing is circulating that video today as if it is something that looks bad. I think they are believing their own rhetoric about what people think about ideas like that. I think the more that gets circulated, the better people like Elizabeth Warren and other people with that message are going to do with a broad swath of Americans left, right, and center. Elizabeth Warren is probably the Democrats' best communicator on economic issues other than maybe President Obama himself. She is now running for the United States Senate in Massachusetts against the number one recipient of hedge fund industry contributions in the entire country, Republican Senator Scott Brown. Elizabeth Warren has been in that race in Massachusetts for about a week. She is now leading Scott Brown. Scott Brown previously thought to have an absolutely impenetrable positive approval rating in Massachusetts. But as of right now, as of the most recent poll, Elizabeth Warren ahead by two. Populist economic messaging tends to work for Democrats. So you've got people like Elizabeth Warren out there running on that. You've got President Obama out there running on that. You've even got rich guy Warren Buffett now being drafted to go campaign for President Obama on this issue starting next month. This is the fight going on in the country right now. These are the two sides. Koch brothers and the Republicans on the rich people just need more side. And the Democrats pushing the tax the rich Warren Buffett rule on the other side. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing that's new this week that you need to know. On that new Forbes 400 list, the Koch brothers combined are now a lot richer than Warren Buffett. Many billions of dollars richer. Game on.
Hello, Jay. This is Max calling from the People's Republic of Davis, California. I recently moved. I'm submitting an activist call to action. Anyone in the metropolitan area of New York, I highly urge you to get down to Occupy Wall Street. Uh, from what I see and what, I, what I've been reading and on the Internet and all that, what I've been hearing on the Majority Report and Citizen Radio, this is uh, getting pretty serious. This could be the beginning of something big. If you're not in the New York metropolitan area, there is a website that's currently down, might be up by the time you listen, uh, called Occupy Together. Uh, I found it through Facebook, if the website's still not up, where you can join a local solidarity protest. Uh, I know in California, there's protests going on in L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, and starting on October 1st, there's going to be one in Sacramento. So do yourself a favor, check out Occupy Together, find your local solidarity protest, and join a movement which could be something huge. Thanks a lot, Jay. Keep it up. Hey, Jay, this is Jake from New York Alt News, and I want to commend you on what you're doing and in inviting people to leave uh, voicemails that you could possibly play on the show. Um, I would like to remind everybody that this is the, I think, 12th or 13th day of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and that today the New York City Transit Worker Union actually joined the movement. Um, I would invite and I, I would recommend that everybody comes to New York to, uh, to Occupy Wall Street and to protest. There's a lot of overlapping um, organizations and groups and grassroots people of all kinds, you know, that need to be there. There's also supposed to be something in Washington in early October, so, um, you know, if you can, if you're in the area or if you can get there, show support and try to become the majority. You know, that's what we need to do. All right, thanks. Hi, uh, Jay. It's your friend Anonymous, and just for those that hadn't heard me before, I'm contractually prohibited from speaking to the media, so I do this even at some risk. But I thought it's worth it. Who knows? It's questionable whether a podcast is considered media you know, as the paradigm continues to shift. Anyway, calling about your last uh, podcast with Lee Camp and the bit on spelling. I was laughing out loud. I've never heard anybody do a comedy bit on spelling, and it's so true. Another bit, a little bit more serious, on uh, Jamul, your death row inmate. Uh, excuse me, his name escapes me at the moment. But I had a situation where your your uh, former, now again listener, who is the police officer, who stopped listening because uh, Jamal, Jamul, I'm so sorry, I should have written it down, his name, if he had a breakthrough in cancer, would people say, oh, I don't want that breakthrough in cancer because this gentleman was on death row? Just because you did something horrendous in one side of your life doesn't mean the positive contributions that you can't give to you society on another side of your life can't be appreciated. I have no idea whether Mr. Abu Jamul 
is guilty or not. I don't know the specifics of his case, but it doesn't mean that he cannot have appropriate comments on other areas of society. And I think this is especially true to review the death row situation again with the execution recently of Troy Davis in Georgia, which uh, I just cannot believe a society like ours would do such a thing. Uh, thanks and have a good day. I'll try to be uh, more professional the next time I'm anonymous. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Shane from Chicago. I was just wondering if my membership is going to renew automatically or uh, if I need to do something. I don't know. It seems like I've been a member over a year now, and I don't know if it automatically renews or I have to go online and, re and uh, renew it. How do I know if my membership is current? I don't know. But I, the last thing I want to do is let my membership with you last because this is the greatest show on earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Uh, first of all, to answer the last question we just heard there, yes, memberships are set to recur automatically. Uh, that is the whole point of the membership. There are, of course, also individual donations, one-time donations, so you don't have to worry about uh, it recurring over and over again, but memberships uh, the whole point of them is to be recurring and uh, sustaining for the show. They're set to recur either monthly or yearly, depending on what you choose when you sign up. And the only reason they would not recur as planned is if you have canceled them, which you can do at any time, of course, or if uh, something has gone wrong with your payment plan, such as your credit card expiring, which unfortunately happens all the time. So it, for any members out there, if you have any concern with your uh, you know, credit card possibly expiring or anything else uh, going wrong, uh, you can check in, make sure your uh, all of your information is updated in your PayPal account, and uh, check the status of your subscription in the subscriptions area also in your PayPal account. Secondly, today I have a question. Uh, interestingly enough, and I was going to ask the question anyways, but an uh, anonymous called in and, and brought up the topic. Uh, do not worry. I'm not uh, reopening the debate about Mumia Abu-Jamal. That has been done already. But I, I just had a genuine question for those uh, who are on the side of, hey, please stop playing him. He doesn't deserve to have his voice heard on, on, on a show like this. The death penalty has gained a little bit more traction in the media recently thanks to the Troy Davis killing by the state of Georgia. And so I absolutely, you know, as I always am, planning on doing an, uh, a death penalty show. And so my question is, is there a reasonable exception to be made to listen to Mumia Abu-Jamal giving comments on the death penalty. He is on death row himself. That is the basis for the reason why uh, you know a handful of people think that he does not deserve to be heard. So I'm just really curious. Is there an exception to that for, for that topic? I am by no means asking for permission to play his comments on the show. I really just am interested in, in the perspective of, of those uh, who, who hold that position. So, you know, I think the majority of people are not eligible to answer this question, so I don't really expect that many answers. But if you, um, if you are one who will, you know, readily admit, yes, I think you shouldn't play him on the show, I would love to hear your thoughts.
That's actually all I have for you today, so I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Mark H. signed up for a leftist monthly membership uh, back on October 17th of last year and has stuck with the show since then. And Edmund B. signed up for a socialist membership on uh, August 17th, signed up for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to Mark and Edmund and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys, as I'm sure you know by now. Of course, all of you can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it as well as spreading individual clips from the show. All of them are posted in the show notes where you can uh, spread them via your social networks or by email or whatever you like. Pick out your favorites and share them. You can also stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor